and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osman, here with my friend of Chavruta, Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Babakama, daf nun vav, page 56. Well, I'm actually going to start with a very interesting brisa that appears on the bottom of nun hay. Um, and since our uh, Mishnah had talked about this case of robbers who, you know, break through the wall of the animal's, you know, fence, the Gemara brings the following brisa, Tanya. I'm a Rabbi Yeshua. So we learned in Abraisa. This is what Rabbi Yeshua says. There are four things for which people, right, if they do this, they are not liable under the laws of man, but they are liable under the laws of heaven. In other words, the court can't get payment, right? Um, but it's in, But if he doesn't make restitution sort of in this world, then when he will have hev- heavenly, you know, restitution for to make for causing somebody monetary, uh, monetary uh, loss. So what are these cases? Somebody who breaches a wall before his fellow's animal, right? And then the animal obviously, you know, runs out. So the idea there is the perpetrator, the person who does this, isn't liable under the laws of man to compensate the owner for the loss of his animal. Um, And they're going to explain why that is, okay? But we didn't talk about any damage that could have happened to the animal also, all right? That's a separate thing. Um, Somebody who bends his fellow standing grain towards fire so that it obviously gets burned. Somebody who hires false witnesses to testify. And somebody who knows testimony that would be beneficial to his friend and he does not testify. So now the Gemara is going to explain and look a little bit closer at all these cases. Amar Mar, right? The master said, Somebody who breaches a wall before his fellow's animal. Hechidami. Right? What's the what's the case that he actually wouldn't be liable? Maybe you'll say that the Bryce is talking about a sturdy wall. According to regular human law, of course he should still be chayab. So why do we say he's not chayab under the laws of man? Ella So we're talking about a rickety wall. So in other words, it's a wall that needed to be brought down anyways, right? Because it could have fallen, it could have hurt somebody. So if you breach that kind of wall, you didn't actually cause a loss to the owner. So you are patur from the damage of having, bringing that wall actually down. But in the court of heaven, you should still be chayim. Now they're going to get to the second case, Amar Mar. Somebody who bends his friend's standing grain towards a fire. What's the case here? If you say that after he bends the grain towards the fire, that it reached the way of a normal wind, he still should be chayim. Of course he should be chayim, right? He put somebody else's property in the line of fire and it got damaged. So why would he not be chayim for that? So the Gemara answers, Rather, it has to be a case where the fire reached the grain by an abnormal uh, wind. Right. So in other words, the way that he bent the grain before he bent the grain, the fire would never have reached it at all. After he bent it, the fire could reach it 
if there sort of was some, the Mepharshim explained, commentators explained there was an unusually strong win, um, or also like he couldn't have been anticipated this strange win. So therefore he's not high up under a man's law, but he would be under heaven's law. Uh, they have another, now they give another reason for Rabashi Amar, Tamun Itmar, right? The Brisha is saying that this is about grain that was concealed. So in other words, the person who did this concealed the grain when the fire was approaching it. Mishum deshave tamun ba'ek, because he made it the grain subject to the law of something that is concealed that is destroyed by fire, um, and this is going to come up later on in a Mishnah on on Daf Samach Aleph on sixty one that if somebody burns another person's grain in which utensils were hidden, he only pays for the grain and not the utensils. So maybe it's sort of related to that type of case. The grain itself was hidden, and then it gets burned. Okay. Now they're going to go to the next case. Right, somebody who fa- hires false witnesses. Right, how is this? If you say that he hired the witnesses to testify falsely on his own behalf, right, he has to repay the money that was, you know, that was exchanged or that that person lost because of this. And of course, he still would be uh, liable under the laws of man. The Gemara answers. Right. Rather, it's he hired witnesses to testify falsely on behalf of his fellow. In other words, he hires witnesses to testify that somebody owes money to somebody else. But in other words, it's for his friend. He doesn't do it for his own personal case. And then they have the last case of the Brisa. Somebody knows testimony for his, you know, for his friend, but he doesn't testify on his behalf. But my asking on what are we dealing with? If you say he could have testified in the group of two witnesses, Pshitza, it's obvious that he's uh, under the laws of heaven. Because it says, right, the avoidance of giving testimony is a violation of the biblical uh, pasuk. Uh, and this is a pasuk in Bayikra, chapter 5, verse 1, that says, right, which says that basically, you know, if you uh, a person, you know, if he didn't, you know, come forward with what he knows. Ella Bechad. Rather, the Bryce refers to a case when he was expected to testify on his own. In other words, something when just a single witness testifies, someone owes another person money. And even though his testimony wouldn't make the defendant liable to pay, right, the defendant still would have to take an oath. So if the defendant would refuse to take an oath, then he would have to pay. So in other words, we're talking about a case where the single single witness doesn't give over his testimony. So he's high under the laws of heaven because the defendant would have had the right to refuse this by, you know, by by doing a shua or by having to pay. Um, So, again, you prevent the claimant from actually uh, getting his uh, from getting his money. So what they do here now is now that they've gone through all those cases and they've explained it. The Gemara asks an interesting question and says, Vitoleka, aren't there more? And now they go through a variety of other brisas that basically quote a bunch of other examples, right? Where we say, Pater Medine Adam Bedine I'm not going to read all of these just for the sake of time, but we have five rulings here with a whole bunch of other cases where it says this. And so the question is, okay, why weren't these on Rabbi Yeshua's list, any of these cases? So the Gemara answers, and I'm skipping down a bit. Ain miha eka tuba. Yes, there are many cases. But honey, it's the But if Rabbi Yeshua needed to mention just these four, 
you might have argued in each of them. You might have thought that these are particular cases where even in the laws of heaven, you wouldn't be chayev. Rabbi Yeshua comes to teach us that they are liable. In other words, these are four cases where there's some types of grounds to say that the person who committed the offense shouldn't be chayev at all. Whereas in all the other cases that are listed before, which I didn't read, right? Of course they should be chayav in some way. It may not be clear that they wouldn't be, they may not be able to be chayav in man's court, but they, it's clear that they still have some liability. But these are cases where one could say, maybe there's actually no liability at all. And so then from there, they're going to go through explaining the reasoning behind that. Why each of these is actually a case of where we might've thought that even under Dine Shamayim, somebody would not be uh, would not be Chayim. But I think this whole concept here, that the idea that there's sort of like two courts, right? There's the civil law that we deal with in our world, the Dine, you know, the Dine Adam. And then there's, you know, this idea of Dine Shamayim, right? That's sort of like, we're going to be held accountable differently to God. And I kind of like this idea, like it's not enough just to do the letter of the law. You have to really think about, you know, what is it that I'm doing? And is this something that's really, you know, sort of the way that God wants me to behave in this world. So I also was struck by this, um, like the parallel and also the differences between the, the court system that we have and the Dine Shemaim, the, the court on high. Um, and again, I'm struck by the fact that I, I, I feel like this is going to be the the case all through Nizikin, you know, this, this role that the lower court has in kind of trying to implement the law that's supposed to be coming to, or that has come down from on high, right? But but there are things that are not in the hands of the, the lowly court. There's some things that have to be left for the heavenly court, except for that everything that the lowly court is doing, that the human court is doing, is really an attempt to implement, you know, what God wants, you know, us to do on this in this world so that it isn't left to the heavenly court. I don't think I said that as clearly as it is in my brain, but I think it's going to keep coming up. Uh, yeah, I hear that. I hear exactly what you're saying. Um, it, it's a whole interesting concept. And I, again, would say it's one of these topics that like it's dissertation worthy, right? Like the whole idea of like there being a heavenly court and what cases fall under that. And when do we feel that there are things that sort of cannot be adjudicated by our courts? Right. And when one daf is going to address both, right? Like not every case makes sense, you know, at all for the, for the human court. Anyway. Yes, I agree with you. Okay. I want to move towards the end of Ahmed Aleph, really moving on to Ahmed Bet. There's a, a bunch of, I would say, really small sections that address details from the Mishnah. So the first one is Nifritza Balayla Oshapratsua Listim, where the Mishnah said that if the the pen, right, of the sheep, if their enclave were breached at night, or if the robbers or bandits or however you want to translate least him, um, hooligans, right, meaning that they have come and they broke in. So what happens? We're talking about a case where, again, the sheep are there, the, the, the enclave has been broken into at night, whether it was you know, unknown animals or something like that, or in fact, robbers, right? And then the sheep leave, right? Because they've got a hole in the fence and they go and they cause damage. 
the owner of the sheep in that case is exempt, right? They do, does not have to pay. This is a, it's a, a case that is far flung enough that the owner didn't have to be on guard to prevent, you know, to set up what a whole slew of night watchmen or something like that. No, there's no need. But Rabbi says that this case is when it's the first case of the, of the enclosure being breached, right? Meaning if you, and, and the reason is that we're talking, it's, it's a case of where, what does it mean to breach it? Where an animal khatra, tunneled under the wall of the of the enclosure, and therefore because of that tunneling, the wall fell down, right? So then in that case, like, what was the owner supposed to do? The fact that there's, what, a rodent or I don't know, right, is, is digging under and it has, like, the the location of the tunneling somehow weakened the wall in an unexpected way and the wall came down and the sheep left, right? That's not to be expected. Um, fine. So that's the first comment. Um, and then the Gemara says, goes on to address the fact, like, what happens if the animal did not tunnel under the wall? Like, then, if the sheep then got out, what if it was the robbers, right? What are the circumstances? Under what circumstances do we say that for sure the owner is not going to be Liable, right? That's that's exactly the question. What would happen? And then the Gemara here says, "Ella bakotel raua," right? If it was a an enclosure that the wool itself was not stable to begin with, he chatra amai patur, and then the animal tunnels under. But why should the owner be um, exempt? Because maybe it was really the fault of the fact that the wool was unstable. He hadn't taken care of it, and had the animal not tunneled tunneled under it, maybe it wouldn't have fallen. But like it's a kind of thing where it's known that it's unstable, that the un instability contributed to the fact that it came down. And then the answer to that is right? This is an, uh, a concept that we've seen before, that when you have damage that is initially done through negligence, and then the end of it is just an accident, right? That's a, a category in halacha to begin with, and that would mean that the owner would be exempt because the end of the day, what happened, even though it began with his negligence, it's still, negligence alone didn't bring it down. It also took this, you know, I want to say act of God, but it's not an act of God. It's an act of a digging creature that went under the wall. Um, okay. The guy keeps going, talking about these, you know, the enclosure and the wall and so on, and the responsibility or lack thereof of the owner to pay. I want to jump to the very bottom of the daf. Because we have a few different, as I say, these snippets from the Mishnah and the different cases that are pulled out. That statement from the Mishnah says, right, that if the robbers or bandits, again, hooligans, what did they do? They brought, they they themselves brought out the sheep, right? Like they stole the sheep. That's fundamentally what's happening here. Well, then those bandits are going to be liable, right? Like that's, I feel like that's, obvious, right? And so does the Gemara, because the first word it says is pshita, right? It's obvious that if you've stole, if somebody has stolen sheep, then the, the thief has to pay, right? That's the point. So the Gemara says, once they have removed that animal, it's under their auspices for all purposes, meaning if the sheep does damage after the robbers have taken it out. It's not about the robbers being liable to pay for the sheep. It's that the robbers are responsible for the sheep so that if the sheep do damage, they are now in lieu, of, you know, in locus owner, so to speak, in place of the owner to the extent that they would have to pay the damages that the sheep that they don't rightfully own has um, incurred. 
So the Gemara goes on. No, we do need this case. It's not something you could just, uh, you know, infer on your own. Why do we need it? The Kamala Ba'apa. It says, we're talking about a case where they they did stand before that animal. They encouraged it to leave, but it didn't leave because they actually took it out, right? This is a case that was brought before these rabbis, where Rabbah went before Rav Matana, etc. Um Namely, that if one stands, like, puts another animal next to somebody's green, right? Now, we've got more different parties going on here, right? You have a person who, um, you have the owner of the animal, you have the person who takes that animal from that friend, so to speak, puts it near near the green, the standing green of yet another party. So A takes the animal of B and puts it near the green of C. Chayav. Now we have to understand who's Chayav, right? Meaning the animal eats the green. So who is liable? The, the person who is liable who brought that animal from A, from the, from the domain of A to the domain of C. Did I say this wrong? I said that wrong. I got the letters wrong. But the person who moves the sheep to the green, uh, that, meaning the sheep that he does not own, and puts it near the green of that he does not own, um, and that the first person also does not own, still, the person who does this transfer is the one who's who is liable. Mamid pshita, right? Meaning because he is the one who, who, who put the animal there. So isn't that, again, isn't that obvious that he's responsible? And that's where the Gemara says, no, that ruling as a separate case is necessary to teach the liability because otherwise you might think about the case of a person who like kind of stands with that animal and kind of urges it forward but doesn't actively lead it. And in that case also, he's still going to be liable. Meaning the, the sheep don't get to... The owner of the sheep who is not involved in getting the sheep to the place where it's going to do damage um, is not liable. Rather, the person who does involve himself, that's the person who is liable. Amar le'abayla Rav Yosef. So Abay says, Rav Yosef, hikisha amaitlan valistim nami de hikishua. Abay says to Rav Yosef, you told us Right when you were explaining this whole thing, Rav Matan and the same name of Rav and so on, right that this is a case where he actually hit Hikisha, he hit the animal with a stick to get it to move, right to get to the right place. So then that could also be the case, right that the bandits hit the animal with a stick, but they did not lead it, but they hit it. And I'm thinking, well, of course, that's still getting it to go where you want it to go. Um, next, and um, there's two more little snippets, really, of sections on the daf. We have Masaral Ro'eh, The Mishnah, that's the citation for the Mishnah, right? That if the owner gave the animal to a shepherd, the shepherd is going to care for it, takes care of it, takes it to the hills or whatever for the day, right? And then the shepherd in whose care the owner has placed this animal is responsible for any damage that the animal causes because because that's the role that he's taken on, right? We talked about the four shomrim, the different ways that there could be a guardian for the animals. This is one of them. Um, and so the Gemara here is going to talk about exactly this, like where did the shepherd go with the animal? To what extent, you know, was the was the shepherd involved in the damage that was caused or or not? How far does that principle of the of the owner, I'm sorry, of the watcher, of the shepherd, how far does his responsibility go under what, um, 
you know, if, if it's a little bit hard to make a blanket statement when we know that there can be so many different permutations of the cases. And so that's exactly what this Gemara does. It brings in the different permutations. What if he's got an assistant? You know, at what point then who is liable? And lastly, towards the bottom of the daf, Itamar Shomer Aveda, right? We're talking about a case where somebody is watching a lost object. Rabba Amar Kishomer Chinam Dami, Rav Yosef Amar Kishomer Sachir Dami. What is the status of the guardian in this way? Rabba says he's like somebody who's who's just watching your stuff, like for free, as a favor, whatever. And Rav Yosef says, no, it's like somebody who is paying somebody to watch the stuff. Um, and the difference there is relevant, right? And it's going to go on, the Gemara goes on to explain it. But the case is, right, like the lost item that has not yet been returned, what is the level of obligation on the person who has um, who has found it and is about to return it, let's say, is it, you know, the, the the stronger level of responsibility is like the person who has been hired to watch it versus just, you know, the Shomer Chinam, where his status is much more like um, a little free and clear, meaning he's responsible for it, but if something comes and, and destroys it, it's not so easy that that the Shomer Chinam would have to pay. So the question of if you're guarding a lost object meaning a found object before it is returned, you know, the the question of how far you have to go to make sure that it is protected is an interesting question. I can't say it's an open question. It's addressed right here in the snippet, this little bit at the end of the Gaddaf, and it goes on to the next stuff. So look, I think what makes this case interesting or these cases interesting is it's the whole idea of, you know, it's the transference of liability, right? It starts with the owner, an action takes place and then somebody else becomes liable because of that action, even without not necessarily having the intention to become the liable person. Right. I think that's well said. And I think it's important to note that it can't just automatically default to the owner. Just because you own the animal doesn't mean that everything that animal does is necessarily your responsibility. It depends how many intercedents there might have been from the time that the animal you know, was under your care, under your auspices, and now it has been either removed or it's run away or, you know, or something else has happened to make it to, you've hired somebody to take it to the hills for the day. Any which of these cases will change the liability. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank is reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.